Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. And the peace of our Lord be with you today as we begin a new study, a new series in the book of Exodus. So I want to invite you where you are to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 1. Exodus 1, verse 1, and as you're finding your way to Exodus chapter 1, I want to invite those uh, who are worshiping in the Family Life Center, the rest of our church family, to turn with us as well at this time, and those who are tuning in online from wherever you may be, maybe on your way home, we hope, from spring break. Uh, If you're watching on the road, both hands at 10 and 2, and get home safely, but we will read from Exodus chapter 1. In just a moment, though, we're going to lift that scripture before us. Before we do, as we pray, I want to remind you that 35 of our members, uh, our, our youth and their sponsors, their, their chaperones, are currently making transition to come home. They've been all week on their mission trip to the Dominican Republic. Here is a picture of um, much of our, our students, many of our students and um, their chaperones. They arrive tonight at 6 o'clock p.m. They land. So I'm going to ask you to, to pray with me through the rest of this afternoon as they journey home. And let's take a moment now to lift up these students and their leaders as they come home to us and as we prepare our minds and our hearts for this new study. Let's bow together. Most loving God, we stop for just a moment to Uh, lift before you um, our awareness of such need in this world. I mean, need that's close to us, like our our students coming home. Uh, Need that's close to us, like coworkers who have asked us to remember them. Um, Needs that are close to us, like family members who are sick or going through the procedure or recovering or going through the thing, Lord. But, But Lord, we also recognize there is... There's great need that moves far beyond us. And we recognize that in this time of worship, when our minds are fixed upon you, there is the possibility of something great. You you might be able to so stir within our hearts that we actually do something about the needs that move beyond us. So we're making ourselves available to you. In fact, God, we make ourselves available to you in this hour of worship to do in us whatever you desire to do in us. Strengthen us, encourage us, give us hope, um, convict us, call us to repentance. Call us out to some level of service. Put somebody on our mind who needs our compassion and mercy. Help us somehow today in this time that we are together to find a way to imagine doing this one more week. Do it all, strengthen our faith, that all of it matters. Lord, even now as we turn our attention to the sacred word, we pray that you would 
open our ears, the ears of our hearts, that you would open the eyes of our soul, that we might be able to see something and hear something that transforms us. So when we leave this place, none of us are the same. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we'll begin reading in Exodus uh, chapter 1. Hear these words. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and that whole generation also. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. This is the reading of the sacred word. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Let's pray together. And now, God, in this moment, we pray that you would help us to center, to center our minds, attention, and our hearts' affection on you. Center us. In this moment, we pray that the scripture we just read would be so heard by us that we are changed forever. We pray that we who are gathered to be your worshipers would, would be freed that we may be able to discern what it is that you desire from any of us. So in this moment, I pray that from the minds and hearts of your worshipers, you would remove burdens. Allow us to lay them down for just a little while so that we may see you unfettered and we may hear your message, your calling, uncompromised. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. I am so excited to begin this series. been looking forward to this series in Exodus for a long time. Now, why the book of Exodus? Well, why not? That's one reason, but there's a better reason than that. I think that it's important for us as a congregation to, from time to time, immerse ourselves in a book of the Bible in which we live, eat, breathe, sleep the same texts. So that through the week, as we're all reading the same passages of Scripture, then when we gather on Sunday, anything that the guy with the microphone says is just one more thing on top of all the discovery that you have already made as you have immersed yourself in the Word through the week. So a word of practical, um, practical awareness here. Every week you will be aware of the upcoming chapters that we will be studying as we go through the entire book of Exodus chapter by chapter by chapter. It took the Israelites 40 years. 
It won't take us nearly that long, but it may feel like it. I hope not. I hope not. But, but to do so, you'll notice in your worship guide at the bottom of your order of worship in the notes-taking page, there is always going to be, there will always be, uh, the assigned reading for the upcoming Sunday. My hope is that you will take that chapter seriously and, and through the week read it several times. Every day of the week, read the same chapter again and again so that you're immersed in it. And when we gather together, we may hear some things that otherwise we would not have heard if we came in and simply heard the passage read for the very first time. Right? So let's join this mutual journey together through the book of, of Exodus. There's another reason why we're doing Exodus. It's because it's our story. I mean, if you, if you immerse yourself in sacred scripture long enough, if you pay attention to it, you, you, you look into the mystery, the stories, the images, the symbols, the people, the experiences long enough, you, you begin to see your own life mirrored in some places and maybe in places that surprise you. See, we all know that Exodus has something to do with a people in bondage, finding freedom from that bondage and then moving toward a promised land, right? But we recognize that the whole book of Exodus is really a theme that is the theme of every journey of faith. No matter what our bondage is, no matter what it is that keeps each of us bound up by something, incarcerated in the mind, the heart, the soul, there is always the promise of a land that is coming. <laughs> there is always the promise of being freed, but there is never a direct flight. There's always a wilderness between the two. Always a wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. And the, the journey of faith is always, without exception, going to require walking the way of wilderness to get there. So for a little while, I just want us to walk the way of wilderness and recognize that that is what we call faith. And maybe in our journey together, we will make some mutual discoveries about ourselves, about our sisters and brothers in, in the ancient world with whom we have more solidarity than we had first imagined. And I think in the end, it'll truly matter. I, but you can't, you can't find anything that means much in this passage, this book of the Bible, unless you look at it through a particular kind of lens. So the first thing I want you to think about is this. It requires, the book of Exodus requires reading these stories with trifocals. You know what trifocals are. Some of you know what trifocals are because you're wearing them. They're on your face right now. I have bifocals on right now. They're progressive lenses. You can't see the lines. That means that there are two kinds of magnification. With trifocals, there are three, which means one part of the lens allows you to see at some distance. And then there's a middle part of the lens that's magnified differently that allows you to see uh, with clarity something a little closer. And, and then the bottom of the lens is the most magnified, which allows you to see what's right in front of your face. The book of Exodus requires a kind of theological trifocal. Because on the one hand, all of the events that we're gonna be reading about, they come to us from a particular context in time a particular historical context in space and time. These are real people, real events, real moments in space-time history, right? They come to us, these events, from the 12th and 13th century B.C. That's a date that's going to be important for you to remember. 
The events that we read come from the 13th and 12th century BC. So in one sense, you look through the trifocals at one part of the, of the, of the lens and you see the events as they, as they happened. But none of these stories emerged in written form until the 6th century BC. That's six centuries later. During a time when the people of Israel had already made it through the wilderness, they had settled the promised land, they had this magnificent kingdom under David, a unified kingdom, then everything fell apart. They were disobedient. The Babylonians came and ransacked the city. Remember, we talked about this a little bit. And now they're in exile, and they've lost everything that ever mattered. And in 6th century exile, these stories that you and I are about to study... They begin to emerge in oral form and then finally in written form only then. Which means it requires looking through the middle part of the glass to see how they would have heard it six centuries after the event happened. Are you with me so far? But then you and I are starting a series today in the 21st century in 2018 in which we are studying these events through the third part of that lens where you and I have a particular context you and I have a historical setting in which we find ourselves, and we cannot read the text without it being informed by where we're living and how we've been living and what we've seen in our life and, and all of our um, corporate and shared experiences. We bring all of those interpretive lenses to the text. So you see what I mean when I say to read Exodus requires trifocals. So I want you to put your trifocals on for the next, uh, wait for it, 25 weeks. Yeah, go on and groan, get it out. 25 weeks in the book of Exodus, and I can't wait to start. So what do you say we get going? Today, the first sermon, the first sermon in the book of Exodus series is an attempt to give us an overview, a kind of 30,000-foot view of the topography of the text, where we back the camera angle up a little bit and we get a wider frame to put around the whole event and to move us, and this today is going to be a little bit more academic than more inspirational. I hope to inspire you a little bit, but it may be more for the noggin than it is for the heart today. You okay with that? So today, to move us through the sermon... I want to give us three phrases, three sentences, three, three words that will help us move through, and they are these. First, getting the heck out of Dodge. Getting the heck out of Dodge. Number two, I stayed a week there one night. Wait for that one to settle, you know. And finally, here is the new there. Now is the new then. So, Getting the heck out of Dodge, I spent a week there one night, and here is the new there, now is the new then. Right? Getting the heck out of Dodge. So literally, the word exodus means exit. It means getting out of Dodge. It means exit. But the trouble is, and we can't start any other place than this, you can't get out of Dodge until you know what got you there in the first place. You can't get the heck out of Dodge unless you know how you got into Dodge in the first place. So get ready, put your seatbelt on, and here is the entire summary of the book of Genesis in five minutes. Are you ready? Somebody say, yeah, let's go. Here we go. 
In the beginning, God had an idea that God would create existence in such a way that God would coexist with humankind and there would be beauty and grace and mercy and compassion and sharing. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 are all about. God pours out of God's own essence, God's character, and hopes that we might be able to live like God here among one another. I'll refer you online to the series that we just finished, In the Beginning, where we went chapter by chapter. See, that's chapter one and two. Chapter three, that design, that idea of existing with God and with one another in this beautiful union, it all falls apart. Chapter four, five, and six, we see it continue to spiral, this vision of God's human enterprise. It spirals in four, five, and six. Chapter seven, eight, and nine is the great flood, and we see God undo what God had done. God creates And then God uncreates because God's heart is broken over what it has become. And we see in that story, God takes a family, Noah's family, and rescues the family and transplants the vision of Eden that had fallen apart in this floating flower pot. (laughs) And after the flood, he plants Eden once again. It's as if creation was begun all over anew and the very first thing that Noah does when he steps out of the ark is worships and it moves God's heart so much that God makes this five-fold promise I will never again never ever 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 again create or destroy the world by flood and so now before God in chapters uh, nine and beyond God has this opportunity to recreate the world all over again and he populates it and they're fruitful and they multiply they subdue the earth And then we turn the page, and it's chapter 12. And now after God had established God's great design on a big kind of cosmic scale, it was time for God to introduce something of the character of God, not in general now, but in particular, through one particular family, Abraham and Sarah. And I refer you to our website where you can watch every sermon of a series we did called Patriarchs and Matriarchs, where Genesis 12 through Genesis 36, we watch this one family experience what it's meant to be to live as the people of God. And God comes to Abraham and says, I want the world to know me, and so I've got to pick somebody, and you'll do. That's a loose translation, by the way. That doesn't quite go that way. And so God says, I will make your name great, and I'll give you land, and I will make your your children so numerous, and this is an important phrase, that they will number like the stars of the sky, like the sands on all the beaches of the world. I'm going to use you so that the world may know what my character looks like, so that the world may know me and be blessed. And then for those many chapters, all the way through chapter 36, we see that one family wrestle and struggle, the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, um, Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And Jacob then has 12 sons. Well, he had some help with, with Leah and Rachel, I suppose, right? But the sons of Jacob, 12 sons, and his favorite was Joseph. And we picked up, I hope you'll remember, I'll refer you to our website in a sermon series called Joseph in which chapters 36 through the rest of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, we watch this one man who was hated by all his brothers. You remember this? And his brothers despised him because his dad loved him so much. He was the favorite. So they beat him up and they sold him down into slavery in Egypt. And yet we watched him through these many chapters. And no matter what they did to crush him, to press him down to the earth, he kept rising up higher and higher, almost like... hmm, 
a Christ figure of the Old Testament. He knocks him down. He keeps rising up. It's the Paschal mystery. You knock me down. I get back up again, right? And we watch him go down to Egypt, and it couldn't get any worse, and yet he keeps ascending higher and higher by God's grace until he has achieves this position of power and prominence where his position as Joseph was second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Who would have ever imagined the one who was sent into prison as a slave was now second in command to Pharaoh, and he was in charge of the entire agricultural enterprise, which was good, because in Egypt, that fertile land, that beautiful land, lush with vegetation, this is the place where countries, when they went into famine, they would come to Egypt seeking aid, seeking relief. And lo and behold, the land of his birth, his father and his brothers who hated him, they were in famine and one day came and did not know that they would find him in charge of the country. And by God's subversive reconciliation, brings the family back together. And we're told that, that Joseph brings his father and all his people, 70 people in all, to move in down in Egypt. And that's exactly what they do. They move in. They, they build houses. They plant tulips. They join little league teams. They do the thing that you do when you move into a town. You pay HOA, you know, way too much money to keep the thing the way you want it to look. And so... And that's where they are, and they're living life and doing life, and they're a long time there. And then eventually, well, he, he dies, Joseph does. Our species is prone to do that, you know. But it begins with great hope because Exodus opens up with the text we read just a moment ago. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation, but... The Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Isn't that beautiful? Because right there in that one verse, we're seeing that God's vision of Eden is already being fulfilled. This this creational commission to go be fruitful and multiply. Well, guess what? They're doing it. They're being fruitful and they're multiplying. Even this Abrahamic promise, your child, your children will be as numerous as the stars of the sky, as the sands of the sea. Well, it's already happening. And right here, as we begin Exodus chapter 1, we have great hope. It's happening. But then he dies. And then everybody who knew him died. Pharaoh died too. And nobody told the stories anymore about how Joseph and Pharaoh used to get along so well, and they were such a great team, a great combination. They did great things together. And you know, I, I had a grandfather who said before he died that we really die twice. The first time is when we die. The second time is when people stop talking about us. Right? I mean, you can tell stories about your grandparents probably, maybe even your great-grandparents, but How many stories do you tell around Thanksgiving about your great, 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 great grandparents? Probably not many. Perhaps the most tragic line of Exodus chapter 1. Ominous. If it was music, it would be a minor key, Bob. It would be, comes in verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He didn't know, why does that matter? Because he did not know everything that I just summarized with you. He did not know any of that. And he sees these numerous people growing, multiplying, and he is driven by pride and fear and paranoia. And so he institutes harsh 
as the text says, shrewd laws that would enslave them all. And there they are, enslaved in bondage now, where they would remain for four centuries of enslavement. So, that is how we got to Dodge. And chapters 1 through 15 of this new book that we're studying now, not a new book, but this new series that we're studying now, 1 through 15, are all about getting the heck out of Dodge. Genesis, I mean, uh, Exodus 1 through 15 are all about liberation. Being set free in order to be who they were as the people of God. This is the part of the book, the first 15 chapters, where all the, the, the familiar stories come. It's a story about a baby in a basket and a burning bush and, and a confrontation with Pharaoh and plagues and, and the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh being swallowed up. All of that is in the first 15 chapters. But through it all and over it all is this overarching question. What will it take for them to truly be free? How long would it take and how deeply do, do they desire to be set free? Walter Brueggemann says, we've all been smitten by Pharaoh. That means we have solidarity with these sisters and brothers in the faith who lived so long ago. We have solidarity because we've all been smitten with what I'm going to call the, the Pharaoh mind. In which we are sometimes prone to be driven by our own pride and anger and paranoia and fear. So much so that maybe even enslaved by the Pharaoh mind, we, we make bricks all day long because we just have to do one more building project. It's got to get one more bigger edifice to me, to me, to my life, to my kingdom. And we remain enslaved in bondage. How free do we really want to be? It would take a long time. In fact, it's been said, and I told you before, it's been said that it took one night for the Hebrews to get out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get the Egypt out of the Hebrews. Which leads us to the second movement of the sermon. I spent a week there one night. My dad used to say that from time to time. Dad, you ever been to this city? Oh, yeah, yeah, I spent a week there one night. I understand what it means. I never really asked him, and I'm glad he didn't explain it. But, but it, yeah, I spent a week there one night. The truth is Genesis or Exodus 1 through 15 is about liberation. Yeah, about being set free. But right after that, chapter 16, 17, and 18, it's about having second thoughts. Because now that they're in the middle of the wilderness, and they are recognizing how much it's going to require of them to truly pursue this life of freedom to become the people of God, they realize at least in Egypt we had graves to bury our dead. In Egypt we had melons and leeks and fish and we, we, we had fire pots and we out here in the desert, this is miserable. And they begin to second guess, are we sure we did the right thing? Isn't it interesting? In each of our, I guess, journeys toward true freedom, we go through the same transition. When we go through seasons in which we are being set free from something, whatever that thing is, we question whether we've done the right thing because we, we ask ourselves, gosh, at least the way it was before, it was familiar. We sometimes prefer the incarceration that we know over the liberation that we don't know. 
Because at least it was familiar. At least this is not unknown. So that's 16, 17, and 18. But when we get to chapter 19, everything comes to a screeching halt. Because in chapter 19, God enters into covenant with God's people. In chapter 19, God expresses in no uncertain terms what it's going to mean if you are going to be called by my name. And he sets forth in no uncertain terms the Ten Commandments, the law. We'll get to that in just a a few weeks. But these are the words he offers in chapter 19, verse 1. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey, can I just back up and catch that again? If you obey, if you obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be treasured, a treasured possession out of all the people. If you obey my command, you will be, right? A treasured, indeed the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. We're going to unpack that phrase in great detail in a few weeks. But here is the place where God, in chapter 19, enters to covenant. He enters into covenant when they reach the mountain called Sinai. In chapter 19, they make it to Sinai. And at Sinai, yes, the Ten Commandments folded. He goes up, gets the commandments, comes down, the the whole golden calf. All of these events happen at Sinai. And we're going to get to the Ten Commandments in July, I think. Uh, Yeah, you laugh now. (laughs) But we're taking one commandment per week once we get there. We're slower pumping the brakes and slowing it down. And he describes in no uncertain terms what it means. If you do this, you can be. But the thing that's most interesting to me about that part of the book, about that part of the text, is is about the time they spent there. We're going to get into what they said later. But can I just give you this little nugget to hold on to as we talk about I spent a week there one night? So you know that the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, yeah? And you know that we call the first five books the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, is the penta meaning five, it means the first five books. You can also call it the Torah, the first five books, though. We call it the, the, the Pentateuch. I want you to do some math with me here for a minute. Inside the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, inside the Pentateuch, there is an internal calendar an internal calendar with internal numbers that describe things that happen. In other words, again and again, you're going to come to places inside the Pentateuch where it says, on the third month, the 17th day of the month, at 4.30 in the afternoon, it was a Thursday, we did this thing. And it's in great detail, not anything is left ambiguous, it's there. From Genesis 1 to the end of Deuteronomy, the entire Pentateuch covers, according to the internal document, it covers 2,706 years. A little over 2,700 years. Now, can I just break in for a moment and say, please don't forget everything I told you about Genesis 1 through 11. Remember in Genesis 1 through 11, I said that Genesis 1 through 11 is a different kind of Bible. It's not math. It's not science. It's not history. When you see numbers, and you do see numbers in there, they're meant with a different motive. They're not meant to be read in the same way as numbers after chapter 11. So we have examples like God creates the world in six days. Now, there are some who believe that means six 
24-hour periods, like the day that we have. 24 hours, there's one day, and God did all that stuff in one day, and the next day, you know, it was a Monday, and, and God did all the other stuff, you know. Six days in a row, but you, and you know the Bible says that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a, a thousand years is like a day. And not only that, not only do I believe that, but I also respect our uh, friends in the science community who, who tell us things about this expanding, ever-changing universe in which everything that you and I believe happened in Genesis 1 through 11 may have taken billions of years to, to unfold. So the Pentateuch, which has 2,706 years represented in the internal calendar, could also be interpreted as, as taking billions of years to get there, right? Are you with me? But if you take even the most conservative, literal reading, concrete reading of just the numbers that are written in the document, 2,700 years, I want you to know this about Mount Sinai. Out of the 2,700 years, billions, out of the 2,700 years, guess how long they spent at Sinai? 11 months. 11 months out of 27 plus 100 years. But even though they only spent 11 months out of 2,700 years, do you know how much real estate that that Sinai story takes in the Pentateuch? You know how many pages of chapters and verses and words and letters it takes? 40% of the entire Pentateuch happens at Sinai. Will you let those numbers sit with you just for a moment? Over the course of 2,700 years or more, they spend only 11 months at Sinai, but the thing that happens at Sinai takes up 40% of the Pentateuch to describe. What's the point? Nothing in the Pentateuch is more important than what happens at Sinai. It's at Sinai that they become the people of God. They enter into covenant with God. And nothing before and nothing after would matter as much as that moment of becoming the people. If they get Sinai right, everything else matters. Can I just tell you that the same thing applies to you and me? Right there at Sinai is when they decided, are we going to be the people or not? Are we going to enter into a covenant with this God? Because he has very clearly said, if you're going to be called by my name, this is what it looks like. You do these things. You don't do these things. Here's how you behave. <laughs> Are we sure we want this? At Sinai, they said, yeah, we do. Now, can you look at that story I just told you about with your trifocals? So that happened in the 12th and 13th century there at Sinai, 11 months out of all that time, 11 months. But now in the 6th century, look through the middle part of your trifocals to those who are in exile, suffering in exile. They've lost everything. It all fell apart. The whole dream fell apart. And now emerging among them are these stories. And they have the Pentateuch in which 40% of it is describing what it was to have decided to be the people of God if you obey you will be blessed, but on the day that you do not, heads up. And people living in exile where everything is falling apart say, yeah, okay, we get it. 
And look just a little further down through our own part of the trifocals. Do you realize there's nothing that matters more to you and me in our life than what we decide to do with our own Sinai? And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and, and, and then all the things that matter most, they'll, they'll be added. There is nothing that you can do that matters more than decide what you will do with your relationship with God. Will you be called by his name or not? Which leads us to the last movement. Not only I spent a week there one night because what you decide to do with your relationship with God, well, it's worth spending a week there one night. It leads us to the last movement. The last movement is this. Here is the new there. Now is the new then. All right, so just to recap, just to make sure, because there's going to be a quiz here afterwards. You know that the first 15 chapters are about liberation. Chapters 16, 17, 18 are about, are we sure we want this or not? Chapters 19 through 24 are about making the covenant with God or God making the covenant with them. Chapters 25 through the rest of the book, chapter 40, is a sermon series preached by God. God issues seven speeches to round out the book. Seven speeches in which he describes in great detail, mind-numbing detail, the construction of the tabernacle. We're going to get into all that later, but just for now you need to know the tabernacle is like this tent, this big tent, this orchestrated, this, this very well-designed tent that, that acted in the wilderness kind of like a, like a, a precursor to the temple that one day would be built once they had the deed to the property and they lived in, in, in Jerusalem. But the tabernacle is where you worship. The tabernacle, this tent, is where it was assumed that God was in the midst of it and, and that's where you went to connect with God. So the tabernacle is a huge deal in the book of Exodus. So much so that God gives a seven-part sermon series. <laughs> and for six speeches in a row, he gives these details, I mean extraordinary details, and then on the seventh, he's talking about Sabbath. So keep that in mind for just a moment. Six speeches of creation. And then a seventh one on Sabbath. But these details are just mind-numbing. I tell you, this is what Walter Brueggemann said about it. He said, look, the first seven chapters there from 25 on is, is about God saying, this is what I want. This is exactly what I want. And then like chapters 34, 35 on to the rest is almost a verbatim repeat, but this time Moses is doing it and pulling it off. In other words, here's the blueprint, and we're going to read every word of it, and now we're going to put the thing together, but we're going to read every word of the instructions while we're putting it together. He said, this is the part of the Bible where if you decide to start reading the Bible in Genesis, this is where people usually stop reading. <laughs> because you just kind of blur into this kind of, ugh, ugh, just enough already, right? But what I want you to pay attention to for today's purpose is this. Did you notice? Seven speeches to round out the rest of this book. Seven speeches in which six of them are about creating and designing something. Six acts of creation. And then a seventh for Sabbath. And the writer who is telling us all about this is trying to do so. He's messing with you. He's messing with you because he's wanting you to remember or to be provoked. Didn't I hear this somewhere before? Something about acting and creating in six days and on the seventh doing some kind of rest. His point is this 
house of worship, the tabernacle, the place where you come to commune with God, ought to do something to provoke in you a memory of what God wanted from the very beginning. So that no matter where they were in the wilderness, they could pitch that tent and enter into worship. And the very design of worship itself, the very construction of the, of the tabernacle itself was meant to provoke an awareness in the people that when we gather for worship, we're not just here to be entertained. We are gathering in the company and presence of the almighty creator of the universe. And while we're in worship, our soul is provoked in such a way as to remember what was it that God intended with this whole enterprise? And where is it that we have broken it? So that when we step outside the tent and get in our cars and go our many ways, we move into a broken world in order to fix it. To fix it. That means every time we gather in worship, no matter where you are or when you are, 13th century B.C., 6th century B.C., 21st century A.D., no matter if you're in the sanctuary or the family life center, if you're on this time zone or another, see, worship is intended to make here the new there, to make now the new then. So that's Exodus. We begin next week. Let's pray. God, we hear your invitation to, to wade deeper into the waters, to walk out into the wilderness, to, to be on a journey of faith that, that grows increasingly more intimate. But we recognize that as it becomes more intimate with you, it becomes more risky for all of us. Show us this day what it means to say yes anyway. That we may truly, by the end of this journey, be called your people. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. <laughs>